0: Seated. At this time, any children that want to go to our children's ministry time to go out the back right there. We've got people who are be happy to take them and teach them a Bible lesson at their age level and they have a great time and uh, they can take care of that going out that way. The rest of you, I'm so glad to be able to open the Word of God with you this morning. It's a it's a blessing and a privilege to do that every week. Go ahead and turn to Hebrews. Chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12. Wanted to point out one additional thing to you that I didn't point out earlier. Normally I might not do this, but we're a small church. We're like all family, right? So uh, my parents are here. And uh, they're over here. So bug them after service. Um, Anyway. (laughs) Anyway. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. Actually, that has not been that has yet been de- decided. So, anyway, uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter twelve. It's really exciting to have them here with us. So, uh, plus they were my ride back from Iowa. A lot of you guys know. I talked last week about going to a funeral, and they were my they were my uh, my free transportation home. So, anyway, I wanted to tell you a little story that is actually true. Uh, Rick was born in nineteen not. Not our Rick. Not the Rick that we all know. Sorry. I'm going to say that before I get into like, how you start figuring ages and stuff. All right, Rick was born in 1962 to Dick and Judy Hoyt. As a result of oxygen deprivation to Rick's brain at the time of his birth, Rick was diagnosed as, as a spastic quadriplegic with cerebral palsy. Dick and Judy were advised to institutionalize Rick because there was no chance of him recovering and little hope for Rick to live a quote unquote normal life. It seemed an almost impossible mountain to climb to raise this son who could not walk, could not talk, could not eat on his own. So discouragement set in. Their hopes were dashed. The life they'd planned was suddenly changed forever. The race they were running seemed impossible to finish. I'm sure you've had moments like that in your life as well, moments where it all seemed too much. Too much effort, too many challenges, too little energy. Some of you may have dragged in here today and you're just absolutely exhausted. You've come in from a week in the world, you feel like you're banged up, you know, you've got an ear hanging off, your arm's broken, you feel like you've completely failed as a believer. Well, I have good news for you today. Actually, God has good news for you today because the author of Hebrews spends chapter 11 running through this list of faithful people from the Old Testament, which we talked about last week and the week before. And then here in chapter 12, he goes on to use that list of all those faithful people in the Hebrew history to encourage believers like us, the believers he was writing to, and believers like us, to run the race of faith without ceasing And that's where we're going to pick it up in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 11, if you'd follow along or it'll be on the screens behind me. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it this is the word of the lord let's pray and ask god to help us understand and apply it to our lives lord god as we come to this time of just peeling apart your word and seeing what it has help us understand it help us understand your meaning Help us apply it to our lives and for it to change the way we live. Let us not treat it lightly, but let us ascribe to it all the seriousness it deserves. God, I pray you would sustain me in this time, keep my voice strong, but most of all, I pray that you would increase, that I would decrease, that that God, this... uh, not be anything that points to me, but help me point straight to you, Jesus. May you be glorified, and may our hearts be changed. Break us where we need broken, and bring us to you, Jesus. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. There is a race set before us. There's a race set before us. Read about that in verses 1 and 2. The writers of the New Testament would have likely been familiar with the Olympic Games. And the most common event would have been a foot race. Okay? They didn't have e-gaming back then. All right? The most common event would have been a foot race. So our author uses the imagery of a race and the setting of being surrounded by witnesses or a cloud of witnesses who seem to be observing the race going on in this imagery. So the first part of that that we need to look at of this race that we're running here is this cloud of witnesses to the race. The cloud of witnesses to the race because he starts out in verse 1 and he says, therefore, so because of what we just covered, because of all those faithful saints that we talked about, those faithful people in the past that he named Abraham and he talked about Abel and Enoch and you, he goes through the list, right? And then he talks about those who got sawn in two. That one really sticks in my head for some reason. Uh, it got those that got sawn in two and were persecuted and despised and all of that. And therefore, he says, therefore, because of that, because that was true, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, those folks, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race set before us. And he goes on, okay? A lot of commas in that sentence. It's a very long, there's a very long sentence as our author often does. He's saying, because we have the example of those in the hall of faith, because we have this great cloud of faithful people who came before us, because we have this vast history of men and women who have been sustained in their faith by God and have remained faithful through various trials and sufferings, because we have their example of faith, of trusting God, and acting in their lives as if they take God at His word, as if they trust in His promises that He has made to them, and their lives, their actions reflect that. That's what we talked about last week. He talks about this cloud of witnesses almost almost as if they were like spectators in an athletic arena watching us run. I watched a football game yesterday. I won't say which one because I don't want to bring any more pain to Jordan. But um, I watched a football game yesterday. And guess what? There were a lot of people surrounding those players, watching them play football. So I get this image of being surrounded by a bunch of faithful people. We have their example, and we're running and we're running. The purpose of pointing out this cloud of witnesses, though, has never been, listen, the purpose of him pointing this out was not that his original audience should ever focus on the the witnesses, okay? The point was never that we should focus on the witnesses, the cloud of witnesses. The point is that we should see that they trusted God's promises, and he came through on what he promised, and that should help us to persevere in the faith, to endure trials and testings. The author was writing to these Hebrew Christians, remember, and they were being tempted and even pressured to walk away from their faith in Jesus and return to that old covenant way of worship and belief and practice, And he wants them to see that there was this great cloud of witnesses that came before him who had a faith in the coming Redeemer. We said it was a messianic faith that they had in the promised Messiah. And to follow their example as it shows them to trust the promises that God made in Jesus. And therefore, that would be an encouragement to these Hebrew Christians who are facing all kinds of pressure to not walk away. And that's what it should be for us as well. He says for them, to run, to run, let us run. If you're taking notes, I want you to write down uh, letter B. If you've been not taking notes, that's going to sound weird. But uh, let us run unhindered. Let us run unhindered. I was reading through this, when just my initial read through this passage to get ready for the sermon this week. And I read through it. So, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great, so great a cloud of witnesses, which is very familiar, right? And sometimes, sometimes when there's a very familiar passage, we sort of buzz by it and we don't like think to pull it apart. And he goes on and down later in the verse, he says, And let us run with endurance, the race is set before us. And I was like, Huh, what is the race set before us? Like, we're supposed to run it, they were supposed to run the race. So maybe I should figure out what that race is. I mean, I have a hunch at this point, like as I'm reading it through the first time, like I think I know what he's talking about. But sometimes I've read context clues in the Bible and I've found that sometimes what I think they're talking about isn't really what they're talking about or it's not fully what they're talking about. So I was like, well, what is this race set before us? So with the context and everything in, by the way, I was right. With the context and everything, it's persevering in their faith amid persecution and the temptation to fall back. In other words, the race is running the Christian life or living a Christian, Christ-following life. That was what they were to do, was to continue on in faith, obeying the commands of God, following Jesus, worshipping Jesus, sharing the gospel, making disciples, and not fall back. Well, that's just living a surrendered Christian life or just living the Christian life because there's not anything such as a non-surrendered Christian life. It's living the Christian life. So the race set before them was persevering, following Christ, and the race set before us is persevering, following Christ, living the Christian life, the life of faithfully following and worshiping Jesus Christ. And the author tells them to lay aside anything that holds them back. So we should lay aside anything that holds us back. Now this, talking about this, this passage, this verse, immediately brings an illustration to my mind from popular culture a few years ago. We used to watch, with pretty, regular, uh, pretty regularity, uh, a show that was on TV, on NBC, called The Biggest Loser. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but uh, if you remember it, it's a bunch of very overweight people who compete to lose weight and live healthier lives. And you'd have these coaches, Jillian Michaels and uh, Bob. Bob was nice. Jillian was super mean. Uh, and they would work people's tails off. Anyway, in one of the later episodes each, each time, they would have some kind of challenge where these people had lost like 100 pounds, 50 pounds, 60 pounds, 70 pounds. And they would have to put on like a vest that had that much weight that they had lost on it. And then like they would have to do a challenge or run a mile or something wearing all that weight that they had lost. And they would get like super tired like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I was carrying all that weight. I can't believe. And then at the end, they would be able to take it off and they could move so much more free and much faster. And they realized how much That weight that they had been carrying around was hindering them. It was holding them back. I like that as an illustration for this verse, okay? This verse is not about weight loss, all right? But I like that. So the question I want to ask is, what are the things that are hindering you in your walk with the Lord? So as we live this Christian life, as we persevere in faith in a world that is growing more and more hostile to the gospel, in a culture at least that's growing more and more hostile to the gospel what are the things in our life that are actually hindering us in running our race that are hindering you now there's a couple of types of things that hinder we're going to talk about sin in a minute because that's definitely there in this verse but there may be some things hindering you as you run in the christian life that they might not be sinful things they might even be good things but they're keeping you from growing You may be getting distracted by them. You may be giving too much attention to them. And the word of God would tell us to strip off anything that hinders us. You may have something that you spend so much time doing or that you are involved with that while it may not be sinful, it is hampering or hindering your growth in the Lord or keeping you from growing. I talk about this a lot when I talk about... um, You've heard me say this before. Uh, Well, maybe not. I say it usually towards the end of the sermon, and some of you may already be at your nap. But the... uh, the, Yeah, thank you for laughing at that. Um, We should be doing things that build our affections for Christ. There are things we can do in life that actually build our affections for the Lord. And then there are things that we do in life, and they actually... Take away from our affections for the Lord or or block them or hinder our affections for the Lord or decrease them. And that we should stop doing those things that hinder it and start doing more of the things that build our affections for the Lord. I see this as very similar. There may be nothing wrong with the thing that you are doing, but it may be hindering you from the Lord. This passage also goes on and speaks of the sin that clings so closely to us. Some of you, some of us, we get caught up in habitual sin. We get caught up in a sin, and we're like, I'm done with that. I'm not doing it anymore. I know it's wrong. I know it's sinful. And two days later, we're caught up in it once again, and we're like, why can't I I get rid of this? Because it's got its hooks in you. It's got its meat hooks in you, and they're the barbed ones like we use for fishing, right? And, And it clings so closely... Friends, I want to tell you that we have got to be serious about putting sin to death in us. We've got to be serious about killing sin. Too many times we play around with it. C.S. Lewis in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, said this, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, Finite stuff that we're interested in, that that we get distracted by, that we let hinder us. Because we can't imagine that God might have something better in store for us. But that's exactly what the promises of God in scripture tell us. We play around too much with sin we go where everyone else goes we get involved in what they get involved with and then we look up and we notice that our lives are starting to look like the world and that could be a sign that you never truly knew Jesus in the first place or it could be that you just haven't been taking your growth seriously you've been letting things that hinder you stick around instead of getting rid of them or putting them to death friends it's too late in the game to be playing around this is war some of you would say, well, Jesus hung out with sinners all the time. Please understand, I'm not going to suggest that you not hang around sinners. We should be around people who don't know Jesus for the reason of helping them know Jesus and loving on them in that way. But some who say that Jesus, oh, well, it, it, talk about how Je- who Jesus spent his time with. And he was always with people who, you know, were the outcast and the downcast and the sinners, and he was always around the people who were, who were deep in that stuff. I want to suggest to you that you might be a little confused about who you are in that story. You're not Jesus. You're the sinner that's deserving of hell who came to earth, uh, excuse me, the, you're the sinner deserving of hell who Jesus came to earth to dwell among and to give his perfect life for on the cross and we can't play around with sin John Owen wrote be killing sin or sin will be killing you so yes we need to be rubbing elbows with lost folks for the purpose of having the opportunity to share the gospel with them but we can't be playing around with sin and we can't be living in approval of sin because sin is dangerous Romans eight thirteen says for if you live according to the flesh you will die but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live John Owen's book is called the mortification of sin um it's an old Puritan paperback, old Puritan class, so it's written in old Puritan-style language. There's an updated English version uh, that you can find online. I was looking at it this morning. If you uh, want to go deeper on this I, I, in this idea of killing sin, the mortification of sin, uh, I would suggest that to you. So that's how we run. One way we run is by we kill sin. We take off what keeps us from running. If you got sin and you're like, I got this, repent. So, what's the other way we should run? What's the other way that we are told to run? We're to be looking to Jesus as we run. We're to be looking to Jesus as we run. Verse 2 picks it up, mid sentence. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the way we should run with our eyes fixed firmly on Jesus. Without having our eyes fixed firmly on Jesus, we will fail. It is only God who enables our running, who strengthens us for the race, Provides our strength for it. So look to Jesus. He's referred to as the author and perfecter of our faith or the founder. Because it was he who established our faith in him. By his death on the cross and resurrection. And perfecter. When it calls him the perfecter of our faith, what that means is the one who brings it to successful conclusions. So, he is the founder of our faith and the one who will bring our faith to its successful conclusion in eternity. Notice how that depends all on him and none on you. And that's really good news, friends. That's really good news. Christ's perfection leads to the perfection of his people because he was the author of our faith, the founder the one who lived a perfect life in our place that we could not live and died on the cross in our place paying that sin taking that or paying that price for our sin taking the wrath of god upon himself so that we would be declared righteous in god's sight his perfection leads to the perfection of his people at the end And the Bible tells us here that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. The cross of Christ represents the greatest suffering in history because it was physical suffering of being nailed in the wrists and the feet, the hands and the feet. And hanging on a cross, basically asphyxiating in front of a bunch of people. You were probably naked at the time. There's a bunch of people watching you die. But it was physical suffering plus suffering of the wrath of God. The greatest suffering in history poured out on Jesus on the cross. The God-man. 100% God, 100% man giving his perfect life in the place of sinners and dying so that we would not face the wrath of God but could have forgiveness of our sins, new life in Christ, and get on the racetrack and run. And in the end, experience his perfection. It's good news. The promise of future reward and joy gave Jesus the strength to suffer, the joy set before him. He knew that his death on the cross would accomplish our eternity. It would bring God glory and it would rescue a people for God. And it was joyful to him. Crucifixion was naked and in public and inflicting prolonged pain on the victim meant to shame them as well as kill them. And this he walked with for you. Walked through for you. And the scripture tells us that he is now seated at the right hand of God. So he raised from the dead. Three days later, by the power of God, Jesus went from all the way dead to all the way alive. And ascended into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of God. Now, many weeks ago, when we talked about the high priest and Jesus as our high priest, we talked about the fact that when the high priest was in the tabernacle or the temple, and they were taking care of all of their duties and on the day of atonement, and they were managing, doing the blood and everything, that they did all of that while standing But when the priest was seated, his work was done. The priest didn't sit down while they were working. When their priestly work was done, they seated. A seated high priest signifies that the work is done and sin has been atoned for. And here we have Jesus, our high priest, as already told us in the book of Hebrews, seated at the right hand of God. The work is done. The atonement for sin has been accomplished. He suffered and endured for the joy set before him. He trusted God's benevolent providence through all of his suffering. And that, we find, should move us to endure and to trust in God's promises and sovereign rule amidst our own suffering and hardship, which, if we're honest, seem pretty small compared to the cross and crucifixion in comparison. So we should run We should run unhindered, we should run looking to Jesus. And then our author tells us in verse 3 to consider Jesus, to consider him. Consider him. If you look up the word consider, it means to reason with careful deliberation. This isn't purely emotional decision or faith. This isn't just looking to Jesus, thinking about him, and getting a warm, scushy feeling. I don't know if squishy is a word, but I think I just made it one. This isn't purely emotional decision or some kind of emotionally driven faith. Emotions are not bad. They're gifts from God. But we were never supposed to live solely based on how we feel. This is telling to think on. Consider and reason with careful deliberation about Jesus, his perseverance, his endurance, his suffering, and what it means for us. He says that we are in, he endured hostility that was not due him. <coughs> he didn't deserve what was happening to him. There's stuff that I don't deserve that happens to me sometimes, or I feel, well, sorry, I feel like I don't deserve it, actually don't believe in that deserve stuff, but there's stuff that happens to us in life. What I mean by that is this. There's stuff that happens to us in life, and we think, oh, that wasn't fair. I didn't deserve that. And we get really upset because I don't know. We got charged an extra dollar for a drink we didn't actually order or something like that, right? But Jesus endured hostility that was not due him. Some of them could identify, some of the initial audience who was reading these Hebrew Christians could identify with being shown hostility though to a lesser degree than shown to Jesus. But they would have heard of Stephen who was stoned probably. This helps us not grow weary or faint hearted. You haven't resisted sin to the point of shedding your blood. It seems like Today, most people want to resist sin by shedding someone else's blood. And he contrasts Jesus shedding of his own blood on the cross with the fact that we haven't resisted to the point of shedding blood. It kind of contrasts there. Though they were suffering persecution, but not quite martyrdom, their great struggle... Listen, because this is really important. Their great struggle, these Hebrew Christians that are the initial audience, their great struggle was not uh, being martyred necessarily. Their great struggle was not persecution necessarily. Their greatest struggle was against their own sinful nature. And this is our greatest struggle right now as well. Our struggle, it's not with the world, but with the sin in us. It's what's in here. That's the problem. So firstly, do not grow weary in your struggle against sin. This is war. I talked about putting death, putting sin to death. We're at war with sin. We must kill it in our lives because it wants to have you. But in Christ we have victory. He has defeated sin ultimately and the author tells them again that they've not yet resisted to the shedding of their own blood. And then he goes on In verse 5. And it says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And something there in your mind ought to change a little bit. The exhortation that addresses you as sons. That's actually, what you see there is a citation. Remember that the um, author of Hebrews really wants to teach them how to read the Old Testament. And how to read it Christologically. And here we have this citation of Proverbs 3, 11 through 12. See, God's discipline proves that he sees believers as his children, as his sons and his daughters. God saves his children. We get to experience the wonderful doctrine of adoption, where God adopts us into his family, though we definitely don't deserve it because we are his enemies and treats us as sons and daughters because as followers of Christ that is exactly what we are and we have the assurance of the love of God we have the assurance of the love of God if you're a child of God you get the blessing of his discipline Oh, pastor I thought you were going to skip the part about discipline nope If you're a child of God, you get the blessing of his discipline. If you're not a child of God, you don't get his discipline. God disciplines his children. We talk about discipline. uh, It's not necessarily punitive, the way we think about it. But it's for our growth. You know, nobody likes that word discipline. Nobody likes that word. But very few people have a problem with the word training. And Michael Kruger says those two words, discipline and uh, training, they're just two sides of the same coin. See, discipline really is character training. Remember, character is who you are when no one's looking. And it doesn't, no discipline seems pleasant at the time. You need an illustration for that. If uh, a child is about to touch a hot burner on the stove, you raise your voice to them and you say, no! Or you smack their hand. And then they know not to do it. At the time, that is not pleasant for them. You know because they're crying, usually, right? It's not pleasant for them, but it's for their good. You're teaching them not to do something which you know will hurt them badly because you have more information and you know what you are trying to teach them. So the scripture would want us to not reject the character training that God's trying to do don't reject the Lord's discipline don't despise the discipline of the Lord don't treat it lightly either don't treat it lightly see this calls for a response of respect and submission so when we feel the discipline of the Lord when we experience the discipline of the Lord that we would respect it understand it and submit to it most of the time We're just trying to get out of everything, right? Where's the best way I can get out of this discipline? Where's the best way I can get out of this thing? Don't despise the discipline of the Lord, but respect it and submit to it. As a loving father, the Lord disciplines his children for their good. The Lord's discipline, and I could say so much more on this, but when we face the discipline of the Lord, it is not to punish you so that you know you did something bad darn you that is not it it's to strengthen and help you endure to grow you to change you into who God is making you just like you do with your kids if you love them you discipline them because you're trying to mold them in who you want them to be who they need to be, or who, if you're a Christian parent, who God wants them to be, who you believe God wants them to be. God has built all of these illustrations into our, our lives, our relationships with one another and our kids. And sometimes we overlook it, or we had a bad experience with our earthly father and so we forget that God is a perfect father and that's, we struggle with that sometimes, so I get that. So what do we do here? As we kind of try to kind of bring it in for a landing, what do we do with all this? Well, I want to challenge you in this. Number one, identify the weights that slow you down. As you're running the race, identify the things in your life that are slowing you down, that are hindering you. The weight of outright sin. Maybe you've got some outright sin in your life. You're like, pastor, I know I'm doing this. I know it's sinful. Identify the weight of besetting sin. Maybe you've got some some sin that keeps hanging around. It's, It's clinging to you close. Identify the weight of distractions in your life. What are the things that distract you from running the race well? unhindered and then decide make a plan for how to lose the weight i don't mean physical weight the weight that of the thing that's hindering you and slowing you down so identify the sins and the weights that are holding you down and then confess and repent of your sins rely on god's spirit to guide you as you study the word of god and grow and run You'll have to keep watch over your life and your doctrine to shake off anything that tries to entangle you and hold you back from running the race set before you. I want to challenge you to do what another pastor shared with his congregation. I'm going I'm to share that with you because I think it would be very beneficial uh, for you. He challenged them and I challenge you to do this between now and Veterans Day. There's nothing special uh, why I picked that day other than it's a holiday that's out there that I could say, oh, between here and there. So between today and Veterans Day, I want you to pick a day or a half a day and get away by yourself, away from the house, the phone, the TV, the radio, all other people, some of you, you that's easier than for others, take a Bible and a pad of paper and plan your fall and winter run with Jesus. On that pad of paper, answer those, sin, those questions I just asked. Note entangling sins. Take note of seemingly innocent weights and encumbrances that are not condemned explicitly in the Bible, but which you know are holding you back in the race for faith and love and strength and holiness and courage and freedom. And write those things down. Take note of ways you suddenly make provision for those hindrances in your lives. The computer games, the hidden alcohol or candy, the television, the videos, the pull-tab stop on the way home, the magazines, the novels... In addition, note the people that weaken you. Note times that are wasted and thrown away. And when you've made all of those notations, pray your way through to a resolve and a pattern of dismantling those encumbrances and resisting these sins and breaking old, old habits. And don't rise up against the Bible at this point and say, I can't change. It is an assault on God if you read Hebrews 12.1 and go away saying it can't happen that hindrances can't be removed, that sins can't be laid aside. God has not spoken this command for no reason. He didn't put it in here just for the heck of it. This entire book of Hebrews was written to undergird these practical commands. So go back and read Hebrews and ask God to take all the glorious truth that's there about the superiority of Christ. We said Jesus is better Is the whole theme of this thing, Right? Everything that's in there about the superiority of Christ, the power of his death and resurrection, the effectiveness of his intercession for you, and make this truth explosive with life-changing power. Take some of your story to a friend and share it with them. Get them to pray for you. Find someone you trust and ask them to check in on you and support you. This is what Hebrews chapter 3 verses 12 and 13 says we should do. But whatever you do, when you leave here, don't drift from this moment into Sunday afternoon before this day is over. Make your run and plan. At the beginning of this message, I talked about the Hoyt family. Rick and Dick Hoyt. Let me tell you the rest of the story. This is my Paul Harvey moment. When Rick Hoyt was a teenager, he received a computer which enabled him to begin to communicate with his family through head movements. When he was in high school, Rick learned about a five-mile run to raise money for another child with a disability. He asked his dad if he would run the race with him. Now Rick's father, Dick, was no runner. He had heart trouble. But how could he say no? So they ran together, Dick pushing Rick's wheelchair every step of the way. That night after the race, Dick remembers, Rick told us he just didn't feel handicapped when we were competing. Rick's realization turned into a whole new set of horizons that opened up for him and his family as Team Hoyt began to compete in more and more events together. Now they compete just... Actually, this is written um, a few years back, but uh, eventually they competed just about continuously in marathon races. And if, they're not, they, weren't, if they weren't in a marathon... They're in a triathlon, a combination of 26.2 miles of running, 112 miles of bicycling, and 2.4 miles of swimming. Together, they've climbed mountains and once trekked 3,735 miles across America. For some 25 years, Dick has pushed and pulled his son across the country and over hundreds of finish lines. When Dick runs, Rick is in a wheelchair that Dick is pushing When Dick cycles, Rick is in the front seat pod on his wheelchair attached to the front of the bike. When Dick swims, Rick is in a small but heavy, firmly stabilized boat being pulled by Dick. Through March 2016, the Hoyts had competed in 1,130 endurance events, including 72 marathons and 6 Ironman triathlons. You can actually watch several videos about them on YouTube if you want. Sadly, Dick passed away on March 17, 2021, at 80 years old. But why did I tell that story? Because I think that image is as close as we can find to what God is doing with and for us. We who think so highly of ourselves are no stronger than Rick in in this spiritual race. But we have a father who loves us, a savior who died for us, and his spirit empowering us. Because of them, we can run our race each and every day with confidence and hope. Therefore, run for the witnesses, for the joy, and for Jesus. And friends, you you don't run alone. You don't run alone. The father. pushing us over the finish line. Would you stand and pray with me? God, as we come to this time of uh, singing together one final time and of really responding to what you've said in your word, God, I pray you would take my efforts and use them. God, I pray that we would not walk out of here and let this morning into afternoon without considering our race with you. Help us to see our sin and quickly repent of it. Help us to see the things that maybe are not sinful but are keeping us back in our walk with you. And give us the strength to peel them off. Help us run freely. For we know it's not by our own power or by our own strength, but by yours, Jesus, because of the gospel that we can run. You're the only way we even get in the race. And I thank you, Jesus. I ask that you be glorified in our lives. That as we run, we not do so to stand on a podium and take awards, but that we do so to put you in the spotlight, Jesus. It's in Jesus' holy name I pray. Let's sing one.